Chapter 16 of the Marquis de Villemare. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Marquis de Villemare by George Sand. Translated by Ralph Keeler. Chapter 16. The Marquis made a sign for the coachman to follow them and conducted Caroline on foot chatting pleasantly with her about her sister and the children. But neither during this short walk, nor on the shaded avenues of the Swiss Valley in the Jardin des Plantes, did he say one word about himself. It was only when he stopped with her, under the pendant boughs of Jesus' cedar, just as they were on the point of returning, that he said, smiling, and in the most indifferent tone, "'Do you know that my official presentation to Mademoiselle de Gentral takes place today. It seemed to the Marquis that he felt Caroline's arm trembling as it rested on his own, but she replied with sincerity and resolution, No, I did not know that it was today. If I speak to you at all about this, he resumed, it is only because I know my mother and my brother have kept you informed of this fine project. I have never talked with you about it myself. It was not worth while. Then you thought that I would not be interested in your happiness. My happiness! How can it be in the hands of a lady I do not know? And you, my friend, how can you speak so, you who know me? Then I will say the happiness of your mother, since that depends upon this marriage. Oh, that is another matter, replied the Marquis de Villemare quickly. Shall we rest a moment on this seat? And while we are alone here, will you let me talk a little about my position? They seated themselves. You will not be cold, continued the Marquis, wrapping the folds of Caroline's mantle around her. No, and you? Oh, as for me, my health is robust now, thanks to you, and that is why they think seriously of making me the head of a family of my own. It is a happiness which I do not need so much as they suppose. There are already children in the world that one loves, just as you love those of your sister, but let us pass that over, and suppose that I really dream of descendants in a long line. You understand that I do not hold to this as a point of family pride. You know my ideas about nobility. They are not precisely those of the people around me. Unfortunately for the people around me, I cannot change in this regard. It no longer depends upon myself. I know that, replied Mademoiselle de Saint-Genoux, but your heart is too comprehensive not to long after the warmest and holiest affections of life. Suppose all that you please in that respect, replied the Marquis, and then understand that the choice of the mother of my children is the most important affair of my life. Well then, this great transaction, this sacred choice, do you think anyone else could attend to it in my place? Do you admit that even my excellent mother can wake up some morning and say, there is in society a young lady whose name is illustrious and whose fortune is large and who is to be the wife of my son because my friends and I consider the match advantageous and proper. My son does not know her, but no matter. Perhaps she will not please him at all. Perhaps he will displease her as much. No matter again. It would please my eldest son, my friend the Duchess and all those who frequent my little drawing-room my son must be unnatural if he does not sacrifice his repugnance to this fancy. 
and if Mademoiselle de Zantrelle should think of such a thing as not calling him perfect, she will be no longer worthy of the name she bears. You see plainly, my friend, that all this is absurd, and I am astonished that you have taken it seriously for one moment. Caroline struggled in vain against the inexpressible joy which the assurance caused her, but she quickly remembered all the Duke had said, and all that duty required her to say herself. "'You astonish me too,' rejoined she. "'Did you not promise your mother and your brother to see Mademoiselle de Gentrelle at the appointed time? "'And so I shall see her this evening.' It is an interview arranged in such a way as to appear accidental, and one which does not bind me in any respect. That is an evasion which I cannot admit in a conscience like that of the Marquis de Villemer. You have passed your word that you will do your best towards recognising the merit of this person, and making her appreciate yours. Oh, I ask nothing better than to do my best in that direction, replied the Marquis, with so merry and winning a laugh, that Caroline was dazzled by the look he fixed upon her. "'Then you are making light of your mother's wishes,' resumed she, arming herself with all her reserve of resistance. "'I never would have believed you capable of that.' "'No, no, I am not, indeed,' replied the Marquis de Villemer, recovering his seriousness. "'When they exacted this promise from me, I did not laugh, I assure you. I was in deep sorrow and seriously ill.' I felt myself dying, and I thought my heart was already dead. I yielded to tender and cruel persuasions, in the hope that they would let me die in peace. But I have been recalled, my friend, and I have taken a new lease of life. I feel myself full of youth again, and of the future. Love is astir within me, like the sap in this great tree. Yes, love. That is, faith, strength a sense of my immortal being, which I must account for to God, and not to human prejudice. I will be happy in my own way. I will live, and I will not marry, unless I can love with my whole soul. Do not tell me, continued he, without giving Caroline time to reply, that I have other duties in opposition to this. I am not a weak, irresolute man. I am not satisfied with words consecrated by usage, and I do not propose to become the slave and the victim of ambitious chimeras. My mother desires to recover our wealth. She is at fault in that. Her true happiness and her true glory are in having renounced it all to save her eldest son. She is richer now, since I have arranged for her support at the price of nearly all I have left, than she was ten years ago, submitting with terror to a doubtful situation, and one which she believed must grow worse. See, then, if I have not done for her all that I could do. I have certain strong opinions, the fruit of the study and thought of my whole life. I have held them in silence. I have suffered terribly from griefs, which is never suspected. I have been in real torture from my own heart, and I have spared her the pain of seeing my agony. I have even suffered at her hands, and have never complained. Have I not seen from childhood that she had an irresistible preference for my brother, and did I not know, besides, that she thought this due to the oldest and most highly titled of her sons? I have conquered the vexation of this wound, and when my brother at last permitted me to love him, I did love him devotedly. But before that time, 
How many secret affronts and bitter jests I have brooked from him, and from my mother too, in league with him against the seriousness of my thought and life. I bore them no ill will for this. I understood their mistakes and prejudices, but without knowing it, they did me much harm. In the midst of so many vexations, only one thing could tempt a solitary man like me, the glory of letters. I felt within me a certain fire, an impulse towards the beautiful, which might draw around me manifold sympathies. I saw that this glory would wound my mother in her beliefs, and I determined to keep the most strict incognito, that the paternity of my work might not even be suspected. You alone, you only in the whole world, have been entrusted with a secret which is never to be disclosed. I will not add, during my mother's lifetime, for I have a horror of these mental reservations, these parricidal schemes, which seem like calling death down upon those whom we ought to love better than ourselves. I have said never in this matter, so as never to entertain the idea of any state of things in which a personal gratification could lessen my grief at losing my mother. Very well. In all this, I like you as much as I admire you, replied Mademoiselle de Saint-Genot. But it strikes me that with respect to your marriage, it can all be arranged as it ought, with due regard to your own wishes and to those of your family. Since they say that Mademoiselle de Gentrelle is entirely worthy of you, why at the moment of assuring yourself of this, do you say beforehand that it is neither possible nor probable? This is where I do not comprehend you at all, and where I doubt if you have any serious or respectable reasons that I could be brought to accept. Caroline spoke with a decision which at once changed the resolution of the Marquis. He was on the point of opening his heart to her at all hazards. He had felt himself guided onward by a glimmer of hope, of which she had now deprived him, and he became sad, and seemingly quite overcome. "'Well, you see,' resumed she, "'you can find no answer to this.' "'You are not wrong,' said he. "'I had no right to tell you "'that I should certainly be indifferent to Mademoiselle de Gentrelle. "'I know it myself, "'but you cannot be a judge of the secret reasons "'that give me this certainty. "'Let us say no more about her. "'I expect you to be thoroughly convinced "'of my independence and clear conscience in this matter.' I would not have a thought like this remaining in your mind. The Marquis de Vilma is to marry for money, for position and for a name. Oh, my friend, never believe that of me, I beg of you. To fall so low in your esteem would be a punishment which I have not merited through any fault, by any wrong against you or against my family. I expect, likewise, that you will not reproach me if I should happen to find myself obliged openly to oppose my mother's wishes with regard to my marriage. I have felt it my duty to tell you all that justifies me in a pretended eccentricity. Be so good as to absolve me beforehand, if sooner or later I have to show her and my brother that I will give them my blood, my life, my last franc and even my honour, if need be, but not my moral freedom, not my truth to myself. No, never. These are my own. These are the only possessions I reserve, for they come from God. A man has no claim upon them. As he spoke thus, the Marquis laid his hand upon his heart with a forcible pressure. 
His face, at once energetic and charming, expressed his enthusiastic faith. Caroline, bewildered, was afraid of having understood aright, and yet equally afraid lest she might have deceived herself. But what mattered that which, thus against her will, passed in her mind? She must pretend not to suppose that the Marquis could ever think of her. She had great courage and invincible pride. She answered that it was not for her to decide upon the future, but that, for her own part, she had loved her father so much that she would have sacrificed her own heart, even if, by a complete renunciation of herself, she could have prolonged his life. Take care, said she with spirit. Whatever you may decide upon today or afterward, always remember this, that when beloved parents are no more, all that we might have done to render their lives longer or happier will come before us with terrible eloquence. The slightest shortcoming then assumes enormous proportions, and there will never be a moment of peace or happiness for one who, even while using all his rightful freedom, gains the memory of having seriously grieved a mother who is no more. The Marquis pressed Caroline's hand silently and convulsively. She had hurt him deeply, for she had spoken the truth. She rose, and he conducted her to the carriage again. Be content, said he, breaking the silence as he was about leaving her. I will never openly wound my mother. Pray for me, that I may have eloquence to convince her when the time comes. If I do not succeed, well, what is that to you? It will be so much the worse for me. He flung the address to the coachman and disappeared. End of chapter 16 Recording by Florence